Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's that time of year again. We're going to hear from some of Hawaii's best scholars. This is the HPH or Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Program. It's for about eight weeks this year, and we're going to talk with some really exciting, inspired folks today. They're all either in college or recently graduated and hopefully headed to medical school. So these are the folks that could be our doctors of tomorrow. And we're going to hear about some of the exciting projects that they have going on with some of our local doctors right here in the community. A lot of times people aren't sure if we're doing research here in the islands and if they have to travel elsewhere to get the latest in medical care. But once you hear some of the projects that we're going to hear this week and next, you'll see that there is so much absolutely fantastic, up-to-date, latest and greatest research being done right here that you can feel comfortable that the majority of your health care needs can take place right here at home. So we're going to start off to my right. And thank you for joining me today. Tell me who you are, where you're studying, and what you're learning thus far. Hi, my name is Sid. I'm going Hi, to be, Sid. I'm going to be a senior at St. Louis University in Missouri, and I'm double majoring in education and biology. So you can teach us all biology when we uh, when we need to learn it, and you also learned about the uh, wonderful weather in Missouri. Definitely. It's very okay. cold. Very cold. It, it is. I spent a few years in Minnesota. I'm with you on that. Who are you working with this year? I am working with Dr. Woody Shu out at Polymomi, and um, we're looking at the appropriate use of diagnostic imaging, so CT scans and MRIs, for patients coming into the emergency department, primarily with headaches as their chief complaint. So a lot of times we hear that if somebody comes in with a headache, we shouldn't rush to go do imaging studies, that the statistical likelihood that this is a serious problem if it's just a headache is pretty small. But if they have certain criteria or qualifications of their headache, worst headache of their life, maybe have some sort of neurologic symptoms where they can't move half their arm or half their body or something to that effect, we should be more careful and maybe do some of these further imaging studies. In the study that you're doing with Dr. Huidi Shu, are you looking at if too many scans are being done or if more should be done? We're doing more of a comparative study just to see whether or not the past year people who have ordered MRIs or CT scans for patients, whether it was appropriate or not. So not necessarily if one is better than the other, but essentially whether they were appropriate use or whether they were not appropriate in terms of when the patient came in. So what criteria are you using for appropriate? So Dr. Shu actually wrote an algorithm um, that... He wrote his own. He wrote his own, exactly. Very impressive. Um, But he wrote his own algorithm that we're essentially going step-by-step through and comparing that with what the physician wrote down in their notes, and we're essentially deciding whether or not it was quote-unquote appropriate or not based on his algorithm. And is there any sense that you're going to look at the results and retrospectively say out of all those scans that were ordered, this percentage showed something abnormal? Yes, we are actually looking at that, and when we get a patient who had a CT or MRI scan ordered, we actually look at the scan and we look at the results and we kind of see essentially whether or not something was severe, whether something happened, or whether it was just kind of an inappropriate use of the scanning imaging. So that's another real interesting finding that for us as physicians here in the community, we'll be able to take a look and say, you know, there's always that situation. And it's all relative. If you've had one person or one patient or one friend or family member that had something missed on a scan, 
for the near future, you're going to be more likely to order scans because it just makes sense that you're worried and you have this extra sense of caution. But taking a look at it from the global perspective, saying, are we really using our healthcare resources in a judicious, judicious fashion? That's something that all of us need to take a look at. And it's great that you're not only going to say, hey, was it ordered in the beginning appropriately or not, but also on the back end, knowing the results, it's sort of like when you get the answer already, how does that change how you might approach the question? So I'm looking forward to hearing some of the data that you're going to come up with with Dr. Shu. And he's a neurologist. I think he's out at uh, Polymomi Medical Center. Yes. And so we'll get some great information. And when we hear more about it, maybe we'll get him on the air and he can tell us about the research results and give us all some input, not just from the physician perspective, but also from the patient's when they go into the ER, if you're not offered a scan immediately, why might that be the case? So some great information and research. Thanks for putting out the effort and time and doing that. Thanks for having me. All right. And let's hear from our next guest. Welcome to The Body Show. Hi, I'm Eileen. Um, I'm a senior at Tufts University in Boston. Oh, we went cold Missouri. Yeah. We're cold in Boston. Okay. Farther east. Um, and I'm studying biology and biotechnology. That's an exciting combination. So not just the biology part of it, but also how to morph that into some sort of way to use technology, mm-hmm. which I've learned I'm just so out of date with because <laughs> technology for me, believe it or not, when I was in medical school, we barely used the internet. I can't even <laughs> imagine it now. I mean, I'm clearly dating myself, but it's just incredible some of the advances we've seen in the last few years and hopefully where we're going to head to next. What study are you working on this summer? I'm working with Dr. Ian Okazaki, an oncologist at Schraub Medical Center, um, and we're looking at access to fertility preservation in the adolescent young adult population undergoing cancer therapy. So basically, um, if cancer patients who are between 15 and 39 years of age are being given um, access to ways to prote- protect their fertility. Sure, because in a lot of cancer treatments, chemotherapy kind of kills the chance of having children later. It, it affects ovaries. It affects the, the testicular function. You don't make eggs. You don't have sperm. You can't have kids. That's a problem exactly. if you're young and unfortunately you get a malignancy that requires chemotherapy or some type of cancer. Mm-hmm. So do you have any preliminary idea? Are enough people being offered the idea of fertility preservation or are we kind of behind the, behind the times there? So um, the reason why my PIs decided to um, do this uh, research question is because they found that not enough people were being offered uh, ways to protect their fertility. Um, And this is especially concerning because um, this is such a big range of people and they're all, most of them are able to conceive at this point. Um, And even if the cancer therapy itself doesn't affect their fertility, um, because cancer therapies can uh, stretch over long periods of time, by the time that therapy has ended, they might have lost their ability to uh, reproduce. Sure. And I think in a lot of cases, if kids get cancer, you know, maybe 15, 16, 17, 18, their parents don't want to think about, you know, their child's future reproduction as much as maybe it's really imperative that they do. And also the physicians may not have that come first in their mind. Oh, we have to think about the future. It's more let's deal with what's in the present. So that's an interesting study to do. And I hope we can maybe take a look at our baseline statistics and maybe in the coming years find ways to improve it. 
because really the key is that if we're not looking at this, we, we really should. And it is something that becomes very important as people live longer because our chemotherapy treatments work better. And we're so excited at that, but we just have to make sure that we still give them the options for their future as well. So thanks for doing that study and for working on the research for that because that's really important. You know, we've had a couple of years ago, we had the students come on and one of them talked about something that I don't think anybody's working on, and it was osteoporosis in primary care clinics. And it just highlighted to me that even I had to change what I was doing. I wasn't getting aggressive enough about it. So a lot of the studies that you guys are working on are not just for the future, but they're teaching the doctors of today that they need to do things in slightly different ways to really maximize the care we can provide for patients in the island. So thank you for giving up your summer and doing that. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and I'm here with the Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Program. We've got half of the folks this week. We've got half next week hearing about exciting studies. When we come back, we're going to hear some more about the great research being done right here at home. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with the Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research folks. These are some very industrious students at various times of college or even right afterwards who've given up eight weeks of their summer to do medical research projects to help us right here at home learn how to handle things in the most greatest, latest technological way or even just get back to some of the basics like we just heard, making sure that we ask families and kids questions related to their future, particularly if they're dealing with a cancer or something that might affect their ability to to conceive and have fertility options as they get older. Now, we were talking right before the break about that project, but we've got some more to talk about. Tell me about your project. Hi, uh, I'm Kirsten, and I'm a senior at Chapman University in Orange, California, and I'm studying biochemistry and molecular biology. But here during the summer, I'm working on a research project with Dr. Don Mina Ai at Straub Medical Center. She is a geriatrician that specializes in palliative care. And we're looking at end-of-life options, so what kind of choices people make for their care nearing the end stages of life and um, what factors might play into those decisions. So we're talking about that advanced directive form that we've talked about on this show before. We also in Hawaii have this unique form called the POLST, or the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And it's something that some of the care facilities require people to think about. What do they want done if they're found without a pulse or there's they're not breathing? Do they want to be resuscitated? And if so, to what extent? So that's the sort of information that you're doing research with Dr. Minai with this summer. Right. We're looking at um, those kinds of forms, whether they've been completed or not. Um, We're also looking at hospice, specifically if they're receiving early hospice education. So this is kind of just learning about hospice and what it entails, even though the patient might not necessarily be hospice ready yet. And then hopefully we're trying to see that um, when the patient is hospice ready, they have an easier transition into hospice. 
Well, and there's another term that happens along with hospice called concurrent care. So that's a term that will probably come about in some of the research that you're doing that is before someone actually meets the definition of hospice, meaning having less than projected less than six months to live. And that's a projection that's very difficult to make and not that easy. So if they're not yet at that point or they're still treating their primary condition, there's this in-between called concurrent care. So it's it's the time when they can still treat their the reason why they're not doing well, whether it be a cancer or anything else, but then also get some of the benefits that hospice provides. So that's sort of a version that's the middle ground, which I think works really well for a lot of families because studies have shown that hospice often is called in a little too late when someone might have benefited from some of their services earlier. Right. Do you know some of the things that hospice can provide for folks? Well, hospice, when a patient enters hospice, they stop any treatment, um, but it does provide a lot of comfort care, and that's what some patients might want towards their end of life rather than going through aggressive treatments that may not work as well as it could. Well, and that comfort is the main issue, is mm-hmm. trying to make someone comfortable. Right. It's not an easy task. I know my mother was in hospice for several months, and it really did help provide her the additional support that was not just comfort, whether it be physical from pain, but also psychological comfort mm-hmm. and just having some spiritual comfort in this mm-hmm. whole process that is often very difficult, particularly for families who are struggling with the concept of losing their loved one And they also need some of that support. So are we finding that we're not bringing hospice on soon enough? Is that part of what you're looking at? Yeah, so we're doing this research to see if this early hospice education does make a difference because uh, the trend right now is a lot of people are entering hospice too late. They'll only be in there for a few days or they just don't enter hospice at all, even though they could be hospice appropriate. And that's also a learning point for physicians as well, that sometimes we need to take a greater look at the bigger picture and say, Mm -hmm. there may be some other options. There might be another way and maybe start to educate. So when the time comes, there's information that we've already started making available. Yep. That's a difficult project. So thanks for working (laughs) on that. Mm -hmm. It's a hard way to give up your summer. (laughs) Tell me more. We have another project to talk about. Hi, um, my name is Candice. I just graduated from UCLA and I was studying physiological science. Um, this summer I'm working with Dr. Jeremy Lum. He's a cardiologist at Straub Medical Center and pretty much we're looking at the percentage of patients with atrial fibrillation um, and their rates of being prescribed anticoagulants. That's a blood thinner. Yeah, so that atrial fibrillation, that's a condition where your heart does this funny dance, so it's just not in a regular beat. And the biggest risk is that if you have clots that develop in the different chambers of your heart, those chambers pump blood right to your brain. So there is a rate of strokes that can occur in folks who have that condition. And depending on the situation, blood thinners are often recommended. And I know that studies have been done again and again looking at the need for physicians, myself included, to be more liberal with our use of anticoagulants. The good news is there's some new ones out there, and you might have heard about some of the new ones. The old ones that we used to prescribe, just Coumadin or Warfarin, required a lot of monitoring. I suspect you're also studying some of the new ones, like Eliquis and Pradaxa and Xarelto, and taking a look to see how often people are given those options. Yeah, we're definitely looking at the old ones as well as the new ones, and um, if... 
healthcare providers are prescribing those, and we're also looking at like the different rates of those and which ones are most commonly prescribed. Because I know the new ones are direct ones, so they target specific blood clotting factors, and those are becoming a lot more popular now today. Well, and the good part is you don't have to monitor as much. So the hard part about using the older treatments is they're very effective. But people have to be careful with their consumption of things like vitamin K. So that means that all those good healthy salads and foods we tell people to eat, we tell them don't eat those if you're on Coumadin or Warfarin. And they also have to come in frequently for blood tests to be monitored. So some of those newer anticoagulants, which I guess now I'm old again because they're now called direct oral anticoagulants instead of novel oral anticoagulants. So I'm behind the times again. But that is that they don't have to be monitored as much. So it's easier for folks, particularly those who can't get to a lab every month or who have difficulties with some of the dietary recommendations. It eliminates all of that. So they're much more convenient. If you needed to be on a blood thinner, which one would you be on? Um, I'm not for sure, but after looking at our results, I have seen that dabigatran is pretty common. Um, I know a lot of different ones have different side effects, so it definitely depends on the patient and their specific condition, comorbidities, stroke risks. Um, also, age definitely plays a factor. Um, yeah. And so you're young, and you have none of those risk factors, and you are the perfect person to never have to need anticoagulants. But there are some that have some different profiles than others. The other key, which is a difference between them, is sometimes they're not as easy to reverse. So the older medicines like Coumadin or Warfarin, we could reverse those pretty quickly. The newer ones, they're now developing the reversal agents so that if somebody were to be in an accident or have too much bleeding, there's a way we could stop that by using some of these newer medications and allow them to still stay on the more convenient direct oral anticoagulant. So that's some exciting stuff. I, I hope that you're finding that we're doing the right thing by providing enough access to the anticoagulants and certainly giving people the option of making a choice. The new ones are also, or the direct ones are also very expensive as well. So some of these things all factor into the decision to use them, but hopefully we're doing the right thing for the right people at the right time. I hope so. Well, if not, you and Dr. Lum are going to tell us all about it. So shout out to Jeremy Lum. He's a colleague of mine and I know he does some great work, and he helps me out with a lot of patients in this exact circumstance. So it'll be good to know if I'm following his instructions correctly. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with some fantastic summer student research folks who are talking about their exciting projects that are revolutionizing the care for the medicine that we provide right here in the islands. When we come back, we're going to hear about our final two projects, and we're going to talk some more about what these students want to do in the future and what inspires inspires them to want to become the doctors of tomorrow. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak with the Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Project students who are here, and they have all gone through or are in the midst of going through college and headed to medical school. They're studying some pretty amazing things, biochemistry, biotechnology, physiology, all these sorts of things that uh, give me memories of lots of studying when I was a student, and they're all in the midst of it. But Not just are they studying during the year, but they've taken eight weeks of their summer, which could be off, and they're coming here to do some amazing research with us here in the islands to help us to further along the treatment and medicine right here at home. So, so far, we've heard about some exciting projects regarding fibrillation, which is a funny heart rhythm condition that directly affects people's risk for strokes. We've heard about hospice evaluations and are we doing these early enough? And we've heard about some more projects we're going to talk about in just a few moments that are directly related to what we do here in the islands. So thank you for coming on today. Tell me about your project. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I'm going to be a junior at USC studying human biology. And this summer I'm working with Dr. Sianyuk Lim, a rheumatologist at Straub Medical Center. And we're looking at the mortality and outcomes of hip fractures at Hawaii Pacific Health. And he's the guy who did the study a few years ago that pretty much got me on the ball and some of my colleagues because, you know, osteoporosis is very common. There are some risk factors for it, and there are some things that make people more likely to get it. But once we identify that someone has it, we really need to start taking a look at medication to treat it. And it's a difficult condition because oftentimes people have no symptoms. They feel great. They can still walk. They exercise. And we're doing this test called a bone density that isn't done all the time. It's done every couple of years. So in that situation, it's kind of hard to convince somebody to take medication that potentially could have a lot of risk factors and side effects and tell them it's for a condition they don't feel they have. So that is a baseline is one of the difficulties. And then put on top of that, if you have osteoporosis, this thinning of your bones that happens with age and with other situations, certain medications, etc., then you are at a greater risk of having a hip fracture. So here you come into the study when you're looking at the rates of hip fractures here in the islands at a particular medical center. So how are you identifying the people that you're studying? They've already had a fracture? Yeah, so we're looking at patients over 50 years old who were admitted to the hospital with a hip fracture, and we're looking at their 30-day, 90-day, one-year, and two-year mortality rates and different factors that maybe affect those rates, such as the type of fracture they got, the type of repair, and if they had any comorbidities or other diseases such as dementia or heart problems that maybe affected the mortality rates. And recently we added another factor, which was um, if they were taking osteoporosis medication before the hip fracture and maybe if that affected the mortality rates. But we haven't gotten the results back yet. So, Well, and that's the results that I will have to talk to Dr. Lig about because he has done some great work in trying to really help all of us to take osteoporosis as a condition that needs to be, I don't want to say aggressively treated because it just kind of sounds more dramatic than it needs to be, but appropriately treated, identified and treated because although you don't have the results yet, I do think that those individuals who are in their older ages, who have had hip fractures, who have had to have repairs, I suspect had they been given medication to treat osteoporosis before they had their fracture, my guess, and this is a guess, 
but I do have some scientific basis for it, is that they're going to do better if they've already been on treatment for their bone condition. Certainly better than if that had never been evaluated or, or discovered. And something that we could really do more carefully for any patient who sees not just a rheumatologist, but also any primary care doctor here in the islands, who and also OBGYNs, they also manage bones as well. So if you have osteoporosis in the future, are you going to treat it? I'm not sure about that. Okay, Let's well, you're undecided. so young, you probably don't have to worry about it. But I'm going to tell you, if you have osteoporosis in the future, if I get it, I'm going to treat it because I don't want that to lead to a hip fracture and and unfortunately be be looking at some serious consequences after that. So thank you for doing that great project over the summer and for giving up some of your time to help us to do better things for folks to maybe even work not just on treating those hip fractures, but also work on preventing them. So you've given me a challenge. I'm going to make sure I get better at uh, making sure to take a look at that and make sure people have the appropriate testing they need and, more importantly, the treatment. Okay, so last but not least, let's hear about our project that you're working on this summer. Hi, my name is Kalpana. I'm a senior at Tulane University in New Orleans, where I'm studying neuroscience and linguistics. Interesting. Neuroscience and linguistics. So there's a part in your brain that is the language part, right? Yes. So if I wanted to learn another language now, you know, I'm kind of old, it's going to be harder for me than if I was younger, right? That's what the research says, but there are some people who are able to learn languages no matter what their age is. Yeah, I'm probably not one of those, I'll tell you. Those are probably super smarty folks out there who've got some special gift, and I'm jealous already. Okay, so what project are you working on this summer? Um, This summer, I'm working with the Pediatric Surgery Group out at Kapi'olani Medical Center for Women and Children on biliary atresia in Hawaii. Okay, so biliary atresia. Tell me what that is. (laughs) Biliary atresia is a newborn disease affecting the liver. Um, and we are looking at the history of this disease in Hawaii over the last 10 years. So does it mean that the bile ducts just don't grow? Um, yes, or they're also occluded in some way. Or they're blocked. Yes. So they're there or they're not there, and if they are there, sometimes they're blocked a little bit. Okay. Biliary atresia. All right. And what are, what are you learning about that? Um, So historically, we see that this disease has a higher prevalence in the Asian Pacific Islander population. And because that makes up a significant portion of Hawaii's population, we see a higher incidence per capita of this disease in Hawaii as opposed to the mainland U.S. So we're trying to see if uh, the incidence rate here in Hawaii warrants implementation of a screening algorithm, which we do not currently have. Well, that's interesting because if we have rates high enough, you know, they look at screening based on whether or not there would be enough, they call it sensitivity and specificity. So we're getting deep into statistics, and these are things that I remember studying, and I'll have to learn them all again. But when we think about a screening algorithm, we think about doing a screening test that will detect enough people who might potentially benefit from finding out about this because there could be some therapy or something done to improve it. So is there a therapy for biliary atresia? Um, so the, the treatment for biliary atresia works in two parts. First is surgical intervention um, in a type of surgical procedure known as the Kasai. And then the second part is a liver transplant. Ideally, the earlier the Kasai is performed, the longer a patient can live with their native liver so that they can have a liver transplant later on in their life. 
So when they're not a newborn. Yes. And then if they can have this procedure that Kasai, I'm gathering, is the procedure named after someone whose last name is Kasai? Yes, it is. You know, that's, if you ever hear of any sort of unusual diseases in medicine, like, where did they get that name? It's usually because the doctor who discovered it. There is actually a Dr. Alzheimer, and that's where Alzheimer's dementia came from. There's, there's Dr. Kasai. So now for biliary atresia, there is that new definition or new description, and it's based on Dr. Kasai. Sounds fairly entrepreneurial. <laughs> and uh, there's not really a Kozak syndrome yet, but maybe there will be. I don't know. I haven't done any great discoveries recently. But uh, I'm excited to hear about all the great work that you guys are doing here in the islands. And you want to go on to medicine? Yes. Yes, I do. Do you have a particular field of medicine that has gotten you excited? Oh, I'm very interested in neonatology. Now you are, and you're doing the <laughs> perfect assignment for you. So you're working in the the NICU, I imagine, or the neonatal intensive care unit, basically the, the sick place for sick babies. And you've gotten excited and motivated and inspired. Yes, yes, I have. Well, we want to have you come back and practice here. We want to have all of you come be here in the medical community. I want to thank you for giving up your summer and giving up your time to be part of this research program that occurs every year. And also to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. We're going to hear from six more students next week about exciting projects going on right here in the islands. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show, you can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week here on The Body Show.